Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 976, 976. Uh, so we've been in a series in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, and we are going to look at uh, Ephesians this week, uh, chapter 1, and the next week as well. And then, as Stephen had mentioned earlier, uh, Dr. Peter Law is going to be with us. Uh, and really looking forward to the opportunity to hear from Dr. Law. I encourage you to be here and hear about the work uh, that he is doing um, around the world, in particular uh, in Nepal, other places of the world as well. And so really looking forward to having him come and preach to us in a couple of weeks. Uh, but this morning we're going to be focusing on verses 11 through 14 in Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading for us this morning uh, from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14 to give us the context. And then we'll look at verses 11 through 14. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for Your great mercy and grace. We thank You for Your great redemption and salvation that You have accomplished for us in Christ. We pray, Lord, now that as we turn to Your Word that You would Give us wisdom and insight, knowledge and understanding into all that you have done for us in Christ. We pray that you would come by your Spirit and open our minds and our hearts, that you would teach us the truth of your Word and that we would be changed and transformed for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. Well, we have been considering the theme of enjoying the gospel by looking at this text in Ephesians chapter 1. And one night uh, this last week, uh, our family was gathered together that evening uh, right before we went to bed, and so I took a few moments to read uh, to the family uh, the passage that we were going to be considering this morning. So we read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, and I asked my kids if they had any thoughts or questions on the passage, and one of the things we then started to talk about was that among many Christians, it seems that God the Father and God the Son get a lot of attention, 
but not so much God the Holy Spirit. And so we talked about that, and why is that the case? And I explained that at one level this is appropriate because Jesus actually teaches us in John chapter 16 that the desire of the Holy Spirit is to make much of God the Son, to make much of Jesus, not to draw attention to himself, but draw attention to the Son. And at the same time, it does seem that among some Christians there is a misunderstanding or neglect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes this is because churches don't teach much on the Holy Spirit. At other times, it's because there's been a misrepresentation of the Holy Spirit that is tainting our understanding of who He is and what He desires to do in our own lives and in our churches. Some of you may have experienced some of this misrepresentation of the Spirit in a church that maybe you previously attended or maybe through watching a particular religious television show. And based on these misrepresentations uh, that you may have been taught or maybe you have concluded that because you've not spoken in tongues or because you've not been overwhelmed by emotion and fallen out on the floor convulsing or because you've not been healed and continue to endure ongoing illness and pain, that the Holy Spirit must not have any role in your life. That the Holy Spirit must not be present in your life. And let me assure you, my friends, that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, part of what it means for us to enjoy the gospel is for us to understand and rejoice in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And so that's what we are going to seek to do this morning. We noted last week that in Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul is here rejoicing in God's great salvation, that Ephesians chapter 1 is structured in a Trinitarian way. Now what do I mean by that? What do I mean by Trinitarian? Well, we as Christians believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. That means we believe that God is one in being, and He is also three in persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 1 is that Paul's praise is Trinitarian. So in the first few verses, in chapters, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we see the work of the Father in salvation. Then in verses 7 through 10, we see the work of the Son in salvation. And we've considered each of those in the last couple of weeks. And now as we turn to verses 11 through 14, we see the work of the Spirit in salvation. And so in our text this morning, I want us to see the Spirit's work in Christian conversion, the Spirit's work in Christian unity, and the Spirit's work in Christian confidence. So first of all, let us consider this work of the Spirit in Christian conversion, the work of the Spirit in Christian conversion. Look there in verses 11 through 14. I'll read them for us again. We read, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Now, there's a couple of 
challenging translation questions here that we have to kind of deal with up front. One of them is found in verse 11, and the other is found in verse 14. And I want to address these just briefly and then show you why this is significant. So in verse 11 we read, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, we read, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, the translation question here is whether the inheritance that is spoken of here is ours or it is God's. So, this verse could be read that we have obtained an inheritance, and that's the way the ESV translates it here, or it could be read, God has chosen us to be his inheritance. Okay? So, it could be read either way. So, the ESV, which is I'm reading from, and also the King James Version opt for, in him we have obtained an inheritance. In other words, the inheritance is ours. But the New American Standard, which is also a very reputable Bible translation, goes with this translation. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, but then they add a footnote that it could be translated, we were made a heritage. In other words, God made us His heritage, His inheritance. The New American Version, or the NIV, which I'm sure some of you have this or reading from this morning, translates this verse, in Him we were also chosen. That's another way it could be translated. And the implication is we were chosen to be God's inheritance, His heritage. Now, let me just say, this is not something we need to get really concerned about, like which one is true because maybe one's wrong and maybe one's right. Actually, biblically speaking, both are true. It is both true, and we see this taught in different places in Scripture, that we have been given an inheritance in Christ, and also we have been chosen to be His inheritance. The question is, what does Paul primarily have in mind here in verse 11? I'm inclined to understand verse 11 as God has chosen us to be His inheritance. And this translation is consistent with other texts, like a passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9, where we read, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage, or his allotted inheritance. Or Psalm 32, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage, or as his inheritance. So that's verse 11. God has chosen us to be his inheritance. Then verse 14, you see if you skip down to verse 14, we read that uh, who, we read there, who, that is a reference to the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, much like verse 11, the question is whether the possession that is spoken of in verse 14 is something we will acquire in the future or whether we are the possession that God will acquire in the future. So the ESV reads, until we acquire possession of it, but in my translation, if you look down at the footnote, there's a little footnote, and it notes there that it could be translated, until God redeems his possession. So it's God's possession. And it seems like almost all the other major translations actually go with this translation. So the NAS says, translates this verse, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Or the NIV translates it this way, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Or the King James Version translates it this way, until the redemption of the purchased possession. That is God's possession. I take it that way. So this to me seems right, that the text is emphasizing here that we are God's possession. 
And he will take, he will redeem us, take full um, um, ownership of us in the future when we are fully redeemed. This is consistent with a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, why is this important? We hear, my friends, I believe, is the great truth that Paul is celebrating in these verses. We are God's treasured possession. We are God's great inheritance. And is that not glorious? Consider this great truth. That of all the things that God owns, He owns the galaxies. He owns the stars and the planets. The earth is His and all that is in it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And of all His many possessions, His great treasure, His treasured possession, His great inheritance is us, His people. This is mind-boggling. And how is it that we become the treasured possession of God? How is it that we come to belong to Him? Well, as Paul teaches us here in our passage, it is the work of the Father, it is the work of the Son, and it is the work of the Spirit. In fact, all three are present in just these verses, verses 11 through 14. Notice, it is the work of the Father in verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, or again, could be translated, have been obtained as His inheritance. And here's the work of the Father having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, this actually is one of the most sweeping statements in all of the Bible regarding God's sovereignty and His control over all things. It's much like the psalmist words in Psalm 115 verse 3, where he says, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Or Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. And do you see what Paul is doing here? Paul assumes that if God is sovereign over all things, then surely He is sovereign over our salvation. The God who works all things according to the counsel of His will has predestined us to be His own. This is the work of the Father. But notice also the work of the Son. In Him, that is in Christ, we read in verse 11. In Christ we have been obtained or chosen as God's inheritance. So God's purpose to save us from before the foundation of the world cannot be separated from the person and work of Jesus. In fact, it's inseparable God chose to make us His own through the atoning death of His Son, the Lord Jesus, where He took our sins upon Himself and He rose from the dead, conquering death forever. It is by and through the work of the Son that the Father has chosen to save us. And then notice the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is present as the Father's plan 
And the work of the Son's redemption is applied to our lives. This is the way the passage, in fact, is structured. If you look at verses 11 through 14 as a whole, in verse 11 and 12, what we see there is God's plan of salvation. He has predestined us in Christ according to the counsel of His will. Then in verses 13 and 14, you see the application of God's salvation. So God, in verse 11 through 12, has purposed it, He's planned it. But in verses 13 and 14, it becomes a reality. And how does it become a reality? We hear the word of truth. We believe the gospel. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And how does this hearing and this believing and this sealing, how does it take place? It is the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When we hear the gospel, how do we come to believe in Christ? It is the work of the Spirit. This is why when the Lord Jesus meets with Nicodemus, the religious leader, he tells him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand, and so Jesus follows up to explain what he means. And he says, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. In other words, naturally, we are dead to the things of God until the Spirit comes upon us and gives us life and enables us to see Christ for who He is and to believe and trust in Him. And then it is the Spirit who seals us for the day of redemption. Now as we see these truths in Scripture of God's predestining us for salvation, some might respond and ask the question, well, does this mean that I can be predestined by God, chosen by Him for salvation, not believe in Jesus, not experience faith in Jesus, and yet still be saved? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. Do you see how Paul lays this out for us in Ephesians chapter 1? In fact, going back to the earlier verses, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, we are told that we are chosen in Him. In verse 5, we're told that we're predestined in Him. In verse 13, we are told that we are predestined according to His purpose. And then in verse 13, we are told we hear, we believe, and we are sealed. And every one of these elements is absolutely essential to our salvation and our redemption. You see, the Bible teaches us that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we must hear of Christ and His great work of redemption. And that we must believe in Christ in order to be saved. In this sense, predestination does not negate faith in Christ. Rather, it ensures it. It makes it certain. And how do we hear? How do we believe? How are we sealed? By the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the application, my friends. If you are not yet a Christian, you have heard the word of truth. You have heard the gospel, the good news of God's salvation, even this morning. Believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great distinguishing mark of those who are God's treasured possession. Of those whom God has purchased and chosen to save for Himself. They come to realize by the ministry and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit that they are sinners and they believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. This is the work of the Spirit. 
in our salvation. He applies the plan and the work, the plan of the Father, the work of the Son to our lives, and He leads us to faith in Christ. Trust in Him. Secondly, the work of the Spirit in Christian unity. So first we see the work of the Spirit in Christian conversion. Secondly, the work of the Spirit in Christian unity. Now, this is really interesting because in verses 3 through 10, as you look at um, chapter 1 as a whole, in verses 3 through 10, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says over and over again, the blessings of salvation, and notice the pronoun here, have come to us. Okay, So he's including himself, he's speaking to the entire congregation in Ephesus, which would have been made of Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are simply those who are not Jews. And he's saying, the blessings of salvation have come to us. They've come to us. And he says over and over again in various ways. And then we come to verse 11, and it seems in verses 11 through 14 that Paul now makes a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Notice the shift that takes place in pronouns, okay? So in verse 11, he says, so he's been saying, the blessings of salvation have come to us, have come to us, have come to us. And now in verse 11, he says, in him we, which seems to be a reference to the Jews. Paul's a Jew. His missionary companions would have been Jews. He says, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we that is Jews, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. Now, I believe this is what Paul means when he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Who were the first to hope in Christ? It was the Jews. Jesus Himself was a Jew. His twelve disciples were Jews. When Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead and ascends to the Father and He pours out His Spirit upon Peter and Peter preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 souls are converted, who is it that believes? It's the Jews, right? They're gathered together in Jerusalem celebrating the Jewish festival of Pentecost. The Spirit comes upon Peter, He preaches the Gospel, and they believe. So... The first to hope in Christ are the Jews. Now, Paul actually makes this point as well in Romans chapter 1, right? Where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. I think that's what Paul has in mind here in verses 11 and 12. Now notice in verse 13, there's a shift in the pronouns. In verse 13 he says, in him you also, that is Gentiles, right? You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, that is Jew and Gentile, inheritance until we acquire possession of it or until God redeems us as his possession to the praise of his glory. Now, why does Paul make this distinction? Why does Paul, going along in chapter One, then in verses 11 through 14, make this distinction between Jew and Gentile and why is it important? Because Paul wants to stress that the Jews and Gentiles who make up the church in Ephesus are not two classes of people in God's kingdom. Like the Jews are the haves and the Gentiles are the have-nots. That's a real temptation, right? Especially early on in the life of the church. 
Paul wants them to know that in the kingdom of God and in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are not first-class citizens and second-class citizens. There are not kind of the loved and, you know, the liked. There are not the favored and the tolerated. But rather, they are one people of God, united in Christ by the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is a major theme through Ephesians, and later on in chapter 2, verses 11 to 23, or 22, uh, Paul will elaborate on this idea much further. But in these verses, Paul makes just a couple of significant points here about the Gentiles' relationship to the people of God. One, Paul says that in Christ, Gentiles are beloved members of God's treasured possession. Gentiles are beloved members of God's treasured possession. Look there into verses again, verse 11. In Him we, that is Jews, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, that is the Jews, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. Now this is consistent with Old Testament language, right? In the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Jews, were God's portion, His heritage, His treasured possession. So, so we're tracking now, right? If we're thinking Old Testament, Paul's saying, we believed. And we are God's treasured possession. And then in verse 13, he transitions and says, In Him you Gentiles also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of God's purchased possession to the praise of His glory. What Paul is saying here now to the Gentiles is, listen, you also through faith in Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit are God's treasured possession, His heritage, His portion. You also belong to God, as do we. Is this not what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So Paul wants the Gentiles in the church in Ephesus to know that they are beloved members of God's treasured possession. But also, Paul wants them to know that in Christ, the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a dramatic event that took place after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is emphasized over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Right now, in our cohorts, which is like our Sunday school hour, so the hour before this uh, gathered worship service, we, our classes are studying the book of Acts together. And in, our, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, through Acts chapter 9, the work of the gospel is largely limited to the Jewish community. So Jews are gathered in Jerusalem. The gospel is being preached. People are coming to faith in Christ. The church in Jerusalem is growing. And then in Acts chapter 10, there is this long description of the conversion of a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And God makes it clear that when Cornelius, who is a Gentile, believes in trust in Jesus, that he receives the Holy Spirit. 
Listen to the way Luke records this event in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still saying these things, so he's preaching the gospel. Peter's preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household and those who are there. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. That is on the Gentiles. And the believers from the, uns- from the circumcised, that is the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? That is, just as the Jews have. And he commanded them to be baptized. That is, the Gentiles to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Do you see the emphasis here? How how did they know? How did the Jews know the Gentiles are truly part of the people of God now? Because they received the Spirit. God made it clear, undeniably clear, that He had given the Spirit to the Gentiles. And so therefore, they must be baptized. They're part of us. They're one with the people of God. In fact, this event is so significant in Acts chapter 9, it is recounted again in Acts chapter 11 at some length. And then after Acts chapter 11, the whole book of Acts shifts. So the gospel is primarily at this point, and Christianity primarily at this point, has been a Jewish religion located in Jerusalem, Acts chapters 1 through Acts chapter 9. The gospel comes to Cornelius, the Spirit falls upon him in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and then the rest of the book of the Acts, the gospel goes to the nations, goes to the Gentiles. And over and over again, the Gentiles are believing in Christ. The Spirit is coming upon them. They are being incorporated into the people of God. As Paul says in, later on in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, the pouring out of God's Spirit on the Gentiles validates that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. One thing this means, my friends, is that everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus, irrespective of ethnic or cultural background, receives the Holy Spirit and therefore is a full-fledged, card-holding member of the people of God. You know, our society talks a lot about diversity, and that is very much so a valued principle in our society. And some of the talk about diversity in our society is good and some of it not so good. But oftentimes in that whole discussion, folks fail to recognize that Christianity is the most diverse religion in the world. One Christian research company concluded, quote, most world religions aren't really world religions. The vast majority of adherents are contained in a relatively small geographical location except Christianity. If you think about the major world religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, even Islam, they are primarily concentrated in one area of the world where there is cultural and ethnic continuity. But that's not the case with Christianity. 
In fact, Pew Research, which is not a distinctly Christian research group, did a study in 2011, and they concluded, quote, Christians are geographically widespread, so far flung, in fact, that no single continent or region can indisputably claim to be the center of global Christianity. Today, only about a quarter of all Christians live in Europe. It's about 25%. They go on to say, a plurality, more than a third now, are in the Americas, 37%. And that's not just North America, that's also South America. About one in every four Christians live in sub-Sahara Africa, so about 25% live in Africa. And about one in eight are found in Asia and the Pacific, which is about 13%, and the church is growing rapidly throughout Asia. Listen, my friends, Christianity was pushing the bounds of diversity before diversity was ever cool. And this type of gospel diversity is not a trend. It's not a fad. It's not something that comes and goes with the cultural moment. But rather, it has been growing strong and steady for 2,000 years, and it continues today. And therefore, that means we must preach the gospel to all peoples, right? Because the gospel is for all. Because God is pouring out His Spirit upon all the peoples of the earth, even today. That's why we prayed for Andy and Eileen Sanders when we sent them to Serbia this last week. That's why the elders met with a young man this last Thursday night who's considering going to China. Actually, he and his wife will be going to China, and they'll be planting churches there, and we're prayerfully considering supporting them as a church as they are sent out. Because the gospel is for Westerners who live in the southern United States like us, and the gospel is for Muslims who live in Serbia, and the gospel is for agnostics and atheists in China. We all need the gospel, and the gospel is for all because God is pouring out His Spirit upon all the peoples of the earth. And since we are a diverse community, we must live in love with one another. And we must be united to one another in love and forbearance and kindness. This is, in fact, the application that Paul will go on later to make in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonded of peace. There is one body and there is one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Because we all possess the same Spirit, let us love one another. Let us be eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. This is the work of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit in Christian unity. How is the church so diverse today? God's Spirit is applying God's work of salvation to His people and uniting them together as one in Christ. Third, the work of the Spirit in the Christian's confidence. The work of the Spirit in the Christian's confidence. Now, look there in verses 
13 and 14, and we read these words. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So there is actually one other place where Paul, in in kind of the same verse, uses both seal and guarantee as a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Paul says, "...and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee." Now, the purpose in, in the Spirit sealing us, in the Spirit being a guarantee for us, is to give us a sense of assurance, a sense of confidence that we belong to God and that He will keep us. So, so for just for a moment, let's consider this idea that this idea of the Christian being sealed with the Holy Spirit. So seals were used for a number of different reasons in Paul's day. One, a seal could be used to indicate ownership. So in Paul's day, someone might brand a seal, their seal, on one of their slaves or on their cattle, indicating ownership. Uh, We see kind of a biblical example of this in Revelation chapter 7, Verses 3 and 4, where the angel of God declares, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. You see, in that text, what's being indicated there is that God is placing His seal on those individuals in order to indicate ownership, that they belong to Him. His seal is an indication that they are mine. They belong to me. And what the Apostle Paul here is saying in Ephesians chapter 1 is that God seals us with His Holy Spirit, declaring that we belong to Him. He is mine. She is mine. They are my people. And God does not surrender what is His. A seal could also, though, represent security. So not only ownership, but also security. So after Jesus' death, we read in Matthew chapter 27, verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure. So they're placing Jesus' dead body in the tomb. They've been hearing this idea that he said he might be raised from the dead. They want to make sure that doesn't happen. So they take his body, they place it in the tomb. They want to make the tomb secure, and they do so by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, of course, we know that this seal was broken, Because despite all the efforts of the Sanhedrin, no matter how many soldiers they placed there, rocks or protection or barriers to keep Jesus in the grave, nothing could withstand the power of the resurrected Christ. But listen, my friends, the seal of God cannot be broken. And what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that when we come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit so that we are secure in Him. And He will keep us and protect us. But not only does Paul say here that when we believe and trust in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, he also speaks of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. The word there is arabon. It can also be translated, if you look at the footnote in the ESV, it has this there. It can also be translated as a down payment. It's a pledge, an earnest, a deposit. It's all kind of the same idea. It makes us think in some ways about like the housing market. 
I know the housing market oftentimes is fluctuating and changing and so forth, but in recent history, we've gone through a period where it's been quite a challenge to purchase a home. Home goes on the market, and if we don't make a, you know, see the home that day and make an offer, we'll lose it, right? Somebody else will come along and buy it. In 2017, Nikki and I purchased our most recent home, which is just about a mile from here. And uh, I remember we, we saw the home the day that it went on the market. Uh, we liked the home, and we made an offer, and two or three other people made an offer that same day. So immediately we were in a bidding war. Actually, we lost the bidding war. We were very disappointed. Got a call that we had lost the house, and then the next day got a call, said that the finances had fallen through for the person who had won the original bidding war, and they offered us the house if we wanted to have it. And so we said yes, and uh, so we secured that, that we were going to purchase the house. And then when we went to the bank and we were going to take out a loan, we had to put down a down payment, right, to secure that the, that the house would be ours. At that time, down payments were 5% or 10%, 20%, somewhere in that range. We put down a down payment, and then the house was ours. Ownership transferred to us, and the down payment was a pledge. It was a guarantee of future payments to come. More payments than I would like to make, but more to come, right? Wayne Grudem, the Christian theologian, says, quote, When God gave us the Holy Spirit within, He committed Himself to give all the further blessings of eternal life and a great reward in heaven with Him. That's what the Holy Spirit is. It's a foretaste. It's just a sampling of what to come is, is to come. As one author has said, we have a little bit of heaven in us, namely the Holy Spirit's presence and a guarantee of a lot more to come. The work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to, to give us a sense of what's to come. And a certainty that more is to come. The gift of the Spirit is a guarantee that passages like Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 are true. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God indwells us and seals us with His Holy Spirit so that we will have confidence that we belong to Him, that we are His and we are secure in Him. Maybe think of it this way. What Paul is telling us here in verses 11 through 14 is that we are God's treasured possession. We are His great inheritance. Of all His many, many riches, we are the object of His greatest affection and love, and He has purchased us for Himself at great cost to Himself, the blood of His own Son. And once we are His, He places us in the vault of His love and His grace, and He seals it with the gift of His Holy Spirit. With the gift of His Holy Spirit, He seals it shut to guarantee that we are and will be His forever. This is the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He seals you unto God as a guarantee that you are His forever. So the work of the Spirit in Christian conversion 
The Spirit applies the plan of the Father and the work of the Son. And the application, believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of the Spirit in Christian unity. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all who believe, irrespective of ethnic or cultural background. Therefore, we must preach the gospel to all. and We must love one another and pursue unity among one another who possess the same Spirit. The work of the Spirit in Christian confidence. The Spirit seals us and guarantees that we belong to God, that He will protect us and He will keep us. Therefore, application, rest in Him. Secure and confident that you belong to the Lord and the Spirit will keep you. And how should we respond? Final application to this great work of redemption and salvation. Paul makes it very clear all through Ephesians chapter 1. Maybe you've seen it before. Three times he repeats it. The work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit in God's great salvation and redemption. To what end? To what purpose? To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of of his glory. Do you see it in the text? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. What is the final application as we consider God's great work of redemption? The work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit. To praise him for his grace and to give him glory. For he has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has sealed us and made us his own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for this great salvation, which in many ways is so far beyond our own comprehension. And yet, Lord, it is clear and plain and simple enough for anyone in this room to believe and embrace and receive and be changed and transformed forever. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of what you have done for us in Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And as we do so, we pray that we would not just grow in knowledge, but Lord, that we would grow in humility and gratitude, that we would grow in love and zeal to proclaim this good news, that we would grow in confidence and rest and security in you. Lord, take your word now and apply it to each of our hearts. We're so grateful for the Lord's table and that we are able now to take the bread and the cup and remember the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who gave his life, his body, his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses. And it's in his name we pray.